The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Getting loads of comments coming in about the late Shane McGowan. Thank you so much for giving your time to showing such respects to one of Ireland's greatest lyricists that we've ever produced. I feel so privileged to have grown up under the influence of Shane's great music. Another one said, had the privilege of being front row at Shane's 60th birthday bash in January 2019 at the National Concert Hall. It was the best night of Irish music ever. The best gig I've ever been to and I've been to thousands. Rest in peace, Shane. Fly with the Angels. Thank you for the memories and the songs. That's from Cathy in Gorey. Lots of you saying Rainy Night in Soho was your first dance song for your wedding. Uh, then we have another one. I love this one. Uh, I first saw the Pogues in December 1985 in the Barrowland Ballroom Glasgow as part of Rum, Sodomy and the Lash Tour. The dance floor afterwards was like a scene from the Battle of Culloden with hundreds of exhausted, soaked fans. Many were unconscious. I was lucky to see all the great punk bands and I witnessed some amazing, raucous rock bands, but I've never witnessed anything remotely as wild as the Pogues on their game. And that is signed by the Bold Martino in Cork. And before we talk to Marion McKeown, who you would know as our weekly US correspondent here on The Last Word, about Shane, who was a genuinely close friend of hers. Let's hear a little bit of what Shane's sister Siobhan said about him. When she was on the Culture Club last year, she's an accomplished novelist in her own right, but when she joined us that time, she recalled the Pogues' early gigs. And the first Pogues gig oh, that I ever heard everybody shouting and screaming Shane's name, um, they were uh, supporting Elvis Costello at the Hammersmith Odeon, and I was walking up the stairs and I heard Shane, 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 I went, like that, Shane, Shane, Shane. And I looked at it and I said, oh my God, what is happening? Because, because, when I've been watching, you know, where they were just uh, kind of on the stage rambling in front of lots of our friends and our friends' word grew and then it was word of mouth in all these little underground clubs and in the Bull and Gate and in the Hope and Anchor and the Wag Club in Soho. Very small, very underground, very bleak. And, uh, um, to kind of been transported then from that because it was Elvis Costello that took them on tour so that's when it, they took that, that kind of leap up uh, but somehow through that tour Shane had because uh, they were calling his name uh, Shane had become uh, a sort of thing for them so, uh, so that, was, that was a big big thing for me to see that for the first time his sister Siobhan to whom we offer our condolences when she was on the Culture Club last year Marion McKeown as I said US correspondent with the Business Post one day you're not on with us Cal Thomas you were at many of those post concerts as well weren't you? Ah goodness you know we we all lived in London and Siobhan dear friend of mine and of course Victoria um, Shane's wife and her sister Vanessa and we were all very much part of a it was you know we were all students or whatever early 20s late teens and we were all running around London like lunatics and I just love the listeners comments there because it's true you know a great Pogues gig and there were many but they tended to be either very great are not great at all. Like there was very little middle ground, you know. There really was, um, and but the great ones, and there were many. You it was exactly as that listener described that you would look around after them. People would just be crashed out with exhaustion, and people 
buckets of sweat and you know it was like a, a scene from a wasteland but the euphoria at those concerts was was quite amazing and I do remember in fact when when Shane they did the tour with with Elvis Costello and they took great glee in, in as Shane said playing him off the effing stage you know because they the you know people I think they latched on to something about Shane for me it was the authenticity it was always that and he never ever lost that. Shane was always exactly who he was and you could like it or leave it, but he never tried to be anything that he wasn't. And what he wrote about, he he wrote from his gut and his heart. And I, I think that was what helped to forge such a strong connection because even today, you know, I was in town with Victoria earlier. We went down to the Rock and Roll Museum because we thought we understood there were pictures from outside. There weren't, but we went down anyway. But just people were there as well. As well. And I think... The, the way people took Shane as into their hearts almost, and I think it was because he was so authentic and because he really, I never heard him say anything he didn't believe. Go, go back to that 80s thing though, yeah. because the 80s, there's a lot of listeners who would be yeah. too young to know what the 80s were like, but Ian it was... <laughs> you don't remember the 80s for <laughs> different reasons, Marion. <laughs> How important was it that at a time of high immigration for Ireland and that Irish emigrants going to London and then the children of Irish emigrants of previous generations had this pride in Irish music being played in a brand new way and getting general acceptance. Well, you know, I think that this is one of the most important things about Shane's legacy. When I was in London, it was, you know, the the early mid-80s and being Irish in London then, you had the Guildford Four were still in prison and we can we can talk about that a bit because I remember after they got out and speaking of a concert in the Barrowlands, they came to Shane's concert on Patrick's Day in the Barrowlands, Jerry, Arm, Jerry Conlon, Paddy Armstrong and they were blown away by it as well. And uh, But I think what, you know, a lot of young guys in London in particular, they were there, they were working on the building sites and construction in bars and they were doing the grunt work and you would see them at the Pogues concert and it was like they found their tribe there. And Shane, they were very much part of Shane's tribe and what he sang, songs like Navigator and songs that were about the really grim side of being Irish in London and that he could connect with them and he could articulate that sort of loneliness and there was an underdog status as well and he he evoked that in in so many songs and again with with such authenticity and and you know a lot of times Shane was quite shy um, like he had a lot of swagger, but he was very shy. And, uh, you know, but when people would come up to him and, and they, they really just wanted to say that to him, that they didn't have a a focus or a conduit for what they were feeling. And he provided it. And again, as I said, you'd see it at the shows. You'd see it at the early concerts, particularly when there were a couple of hundred, that there would be a lot of these people who were in, in London who were living pretty miserable lives. And this was an outlet for them and a feeling that somebody recognised what the life that they were living and, and, you know, with all of its loneliness and its bleakness. But again, it's moments of euphoria and it's moments of fun as well and mischief. And I, I think he really spoke to that in a way that nobody else was doing. And he made Irish music fashionable again. You know, in a way, he made Irish music relevant for a whole new generation that I don't think it would have been for otherwise. And, you know, like the Dubliners and the Pogues were great friends. And I remember... Oh my God, so many memories. But when they, when they wrote the song for, when Ireland was, uh, 
in the World Cup in 1992, I think. 1990, was, Marion. Your knowledge of sport <laughs> is the one thing you do not have, OK? I haven't got it. But uh, they, they ran up a song, uh, Jack's Heroes, and it was brilliant. It was absolutely... And they did a video with the Dubliners and it was a football game in, I think it was Daily Man Park, won the parks, and just the fun. And I think that that was the thing about Shane, that the fun and the mayhem and the mischief. And, you know, it was never dull. He Shane and Vic moved into my house in Dublin for a, a good long time after after they moved back from London to Dublin. And again, it was this constant fun and mayhem and mischief, but it was also very normal. But was it always fun? I mean, how did his addictions affect him? Because at one stage, we heard earlier in the programme and his father responding in such a wonderful fashion to the questions about Pat Kenny in relation to heroin use and alcohol use in particular. I mean, did they inhibit his development even as an artist, do you think? Do you know, I don't know. I really don't. I mean, there's no question and that, you know, Shane really did wrestle with drug addiction in particular and, and with alcohol. And I remember being in, in a pub in London with him in this pub called Minogue's, which was in Islington. And, you know, he'd do this thing where he'd peel the, the, the front off a beer mat and you'd have the white kind of, you know, pulpy thing. Yeah. And he'd scribble lyrics on that and he'd write, you know, he'd, like he'd do 10 or 20 a night. And I remember being there one night and, and he'd just leaves and they'd end up on the floor or whatever if Vic didn't rescue them and Vic rescued Victoria, his wife, so much of his stuff and a lot of it was put into his book but um, he would be just sitting there and drinking away and, and scribbling and uh, I remember saying to him, are you not concerned that you're losing all these songs and, and you know that you write these lyrics he went, well if they were any good I'd remember them, you know and that was his attitude so I don't know, I think yes, I, I think that the in the way that it did affect his health and his his well-being. But his mental acuity was staggering because he was the smartest person I think probably I ever met. And even when he was in a haze of drink or drugs, he would he wouldn't miss a trick. And that was kind of astonishing to me. You wrote a great piece for the Business Post back in 2022, which has gone back up on the website at present, about an art exhibition for his work in London. Because tell us a little bit about how, even if he wasn't writing new songs and performing in recent years, he had many other interests and many other outlets for his brilliance. Yeah, well, he was always scribbling and drawing. I mean, I I have somewhere in a bag in some attic or somewhere a bunch of stuff of scribbles that changed birthday cards Christmas cards postcards they were they could be very rude very bawdy very witty I remember one time when he was on tour and he was miserable being on tour and I got a postcard saying I wouldn't wish you were here on my worst enemy <laughs> that was his sort of you know like he he was he was very you know and he he um he was a voracious reader like and more so not not in recent years, but you know, and like things where you would be sitting with him and he would be discussing the plot of Neighbours, the finer plot lines of Neighbours, which was the big soap of the the eighties, and he'd segue straight into the Odyssey or whatever or something that Joyce had written. He had a massive intellect and he could absorb. He was a sponge, uh, so he was always drawing, he was always scribbling, he was always writing something. You know, he would, but he would have the TV on. He'd be watching some. Gorefest Western. He'd be listening to Van Morrison at the same time or someone else. He'd, you know, he'd be drawing. It was like there were eight different things going at the same time always. Well, then, how did he cope with his declining health over the last decade or so? Uh, you know, I think it was very difficult, but he was very stoic. I never heard Shane complain. Now, he could be cantankerous. He could be a narky little so-and-so when it suited him. Um, and he could be irascible, but he never 
complained in the way that people whine about, you know, any ailment. He he never complained. He was very religious. Um, and I think that... But did that had, stay with him all the way through his life? I never remember a point when Shane wasn't religious, when he wasn't... Now, he could be very irreverent about religious institutions and the church and all that, but he was... He had a real, what they would call like a devotion to the Virgin Mary. He was really um, very, very... And he always had the... the, uh, the Miraculous medals. Miraculous medals and the, the scalp, scalpulas, I think they were called around his neck and the crucifix. And like he, he was, and I think that he did turn to religion a lot because he, you know, in the last several years, like he drank very, very little. There was very little, you know, of the, the old chaotic lifestyle going on. But I think that he found solace again with, you know, he and Victoria were... They were an incredibly romantic couple. Well, they got married after about how many years together? God, 30-something years, yeah. And it was in Copenhagen and there were only, I think there were 16 or 18 of us there. And it was, I'm not kidding when I say it was the most romantic, love-filled wedding. And, and you know, they were they had such a connection and such a bond and they never lost the romance of, and again, and, and Vic, if she were here, she would say it, like they had as many ups as downs and downs as ups but but there was a beautiful romance in their relationship always Okay Marion coming to the end of this somebody said it in a text message earlier how great it was that there had been a celebration on the Late Late Show in 2019 and there was the event in the National Concert Hall in 2018 that President Michael D Higgins was at so how did he feel about the fact that he was appreciated and he didn't have to be dead before all of the great tributes were paid. Um, well, you know, he used to sort of snigger in that kind of Shane irascible kind of cackle. And, and I think I think he got a bit embarrassed, but I think he liked it. I think, you know, he worked damn hard for it, you know, and I think the fact that his songs were appreciated and they stood on their own and he was recognised as an artist and a writer. But as I said, like he, he really did, I think, enjoy the really simple stuff as well. Like I said, like we were sitting in my house on Christmas Eve many years ago and uh, we were all making stuffing and wrapping presents and getting ready for the next day. And I said, Shane, you're bloody useless. Would you ever do something? You know, and he went, well, what do you want me to do? I said, well, sing a song. <laughs> so for the next five or six hours, it was like having a human jukebox in the kitchen. He sang every Christmas song. And every time he said, you know, we'd go, don't sing fairy tale. Because it was a kind of a running joke that everybody was sick of fairy tale. <laughs> but uh, he, he um, I used to joke that last Christmas was my favourite Christmas song. And, you know, just to get a rise out. From Wham. From Wham, yeah, which, um, you know, kind of, kind of was up there, it has to be said. But I, I think the thing about Shane that is that he had this very, he had a capacity to be very, to live a very normal life as well as a very chaotic life. And I think wherever he found himself, he kind of seemed to, to just make the most of it, you know, in, in a very, like he lived so much in his head, he had such creative force going on in his head that it was almost irrelevant if he was in a bar or in his house or in a, you know. But there were a lot of, there were a lot of great times and a lot of very tough times as well. And I think he never, as I said, the reason I think people took him to his, their hearts so much is he never pretended it was anything it wasn't, whether it was good or whether it was bad. You know, Marion McKeown, thank you so much for take, talking about your great friend, the late Shane McGowan. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.